0: If you brought a Bible with you or maybe it's on your phone um, or on your uh, iPad, would you open it up to Romans chapter 6? And if you don't own a Bible, there's uh, some in the racks around you uh, and you can use one there or, or grab one of the free ones in the back when you leave this morning. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word. Um, in the last few months, Gary and Michael and I have been talking about what a remarkable thing it is. Um, to go from three pastors on staff to six pastors on staff all of a sudden, right? So you guys should have no reason to feel like you don't have a pastor to go to. Um, so, you know, we recently added Kyle a few months ago, and then, and then Joe and Dave coming on on staff. And I really would just never want to take that lightly that God is up to something and doing things that we really can't quite see yet, but understand that he's orchestrating things for the purpose of us doing exactly what you just sang about that, that the church would rise in Jesus' name, that the city would sing as a response to that, that we would be a fragrant aroma in the community that we live in to the degree that people are actually drawn into relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a remarkable thing to be a part of this church, to be able to be watching and be instrumentally involved in it. We, I mean, we are privileged people that we get to see God doing what he's doing. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. I met with um, Joe and Dave's former boss at Riverview and, and one of the executive pastors there. And you need to know that they give their blessing to what these guys are doing. You know, it's the church working together saying, this is about kingdom. This is about kingdom stuff, advancing the kingdom. So when we sing like we just did, bring down those walls, let the church rise in Jesus' name. That's the church, not just new hope. That's the church working together to advance the name of Jesus Christ. So I want to take you into Romans 6 with that thought in mind, because I need to remind you, as you study the deep things that we're looking at in Romans 6, these things are not written to make you more saved, right? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're already saved. If you believe that, say amen. Amen. Okay, you're already destined for heaven. That is your eternal destiny if you're a believer in Jesus. So these things are not written to make you more saved, There must be a reason behind why these things are written. They're written for us to look at this measuring bar that Jesus set for us, saying, like Paul, I press on towards the high calling in Christ Jesus. I keep pushing towards the mark, not to make us more saved, but that we would actually reflect the holiness that he says he he sees us in. Did you know that Jesus sees you as holy this morning? God sees you as holy because of what has been done for you even if you don't feel so holy yourself. So we spent a fair amount of time last week in verse 11 in chapter six, and I don't wanna spend a lot of time there this morning, I just wanna touch on it for a moment. Before I do that, I wanna pray with you, pray with everybody that's watching online that God would really attune our hearts to hear what he has to say to us. Would you join me in that? Let's pray together. Father, we recognize the things that we have just sang about, the things that we've talked about are, are all because of what you're doing, what your kingdom is about. We come together as a people this morning with our hearts distracted at times, and we're prone to be thinking about the things that are going on outside when you ask us to be focused. So I pray for that, Father, right now, then in, this, in this moment, that you would focus our hearts, focus our thoughts on what you want to say. What is your word communicating? You've said that your word is alive, so we're claiming that. We're asking that you would cause it to be alive in this moment, that it would do things. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, who is our teacher, that you would cause us to see exactly what you need to say to us this morning. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So in verse 11, here's where we left off at. Paul said you need to consider something. I want you to see it on the screen if you're not looking at it in your Bible right now. Even so, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And I said last week, this is an issue of self-examination. Or every person who identifies themselves as a Christ follower has to examine themselves and look at the reality of what's being stated here. It might surprise you to learn that many people who profess jesus christ as their savior don't actually understand or know that god sees them as holy god sees them already as dead to sin and alive to god in christ jesus and 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 so when we commit unholy acts in the midst of our day when we do things that are sinful in our behavior it causes us to feel even more of a recoil and say oh man i don't feel so holy i i know you say i'm holy But I'm not feeling so holy in this moment. God says, even in that moment, I see you as holy. Not because of what you've done, but because of what my son did for you. I see you that way. So Paul's saying, you have gotta consider the reality here. You're dead to sin, you're alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is not a mind game, New Hope. This is not Paul saying, you have gotta say it over and over and over and over again. I'm alive to God, I'm alive to God, I'm alive to God. It's not that. It's a reality, it's a fact. God says, you're dead to sin, you're alive to me because my word declares it, amen? His word says it to be true. So let's understand this word consider. He uses this word very deliberately. This word is used 41 times in the New Testament. 19 of the 41 times consider is used, it's used in the book of Romans, right? So almost 50% of the time that consider is used, it's used in this book that you're studying. And I told you last week, it's borrowed from the financial world. It means to take a calculation, to calculate something you know to be factually true. So Paul's saying, calculate the reality that you're dead to sin and you're alive to God. Let me show you a couple of other places that it's used in the New Testament, and you'll kind of see where I'm going with this this thought of consider. First one comes from James 1. James 1.2, it says, calculate. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. It's true. The testing of your faith, it will produce endurance. He's talking about a factual, actual event. You you're going through hard times right now? You being tested? God says that's producing something in you. It produces endurance. Let me show you another example. 1 Corinthians 1.26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. It's true. Paul's writing to the first century church saying, yeah, you guys, you're not all that. You weren't all that accomplished. When God chose you, He chose to use the humble things of this world. I think you might have had Peter in mind, right? You're not all that smart. You're not all that mighty. That, that's true. Consider the reality of this. But yet He chose you. Here's another example. Romans 8.18. For... I consider, this is why people love chapter eight, for I consider, I calculate that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I'm really looking forward to chapter eight. It's just gonna take us a while to get there. And I know why many people love it because of verses like that. I calculate these things I'm going through right now, they're nothing in comparison to what God's got in store for me. So here's Paul in Romans 6 when he comes to this word considering saying, you need to do a review of what you know to be true and as a result, believe what God says in his word is true. It's as though Paul is reaching across millennia, 2,000 years. New hope. Calculate the reality. You're dead to sin. You're alive to God. You're in Christ Jesus. Don't let this escape your notice. This word consider, it translates into something that's real in your life. When you stop and calculate, when you consider, it translates into action. Thought is the father of action, right? Think you need to hear that again? Thought is the father of action. So when Paul says stop and consider this, stop and think, you've got to consider what you're doing here. Let me give you a real world illustration, put it on the street. This is like cashing a check, right? You work for an employer, maybe your employer doesn't issue um, electronic payroll yet, and they're still doing paper payroll, and you get a check from your employer. And you go to the bank wherever you want to deposit that check, and maybe you want to convert it to cash. When you hand it to the banker, and you endorse it and put your name on it, you're handing it over in good faith that there's money in that account to back that up, right? There's confidence, that's a fact. You believe in that instrument, that paper. In reverse to that, if you have an instrument you don't believe in, you're never gonna cash it because you're not confident that that's a reality. Lori and I in the last uh, couple months sold a washer and dryer online. So we put it on Craigslist. We bought it a couple years ago when we moved into our house and I thought I bought her a really, really good set. And it's one that salesmen really convinced us on. High efficiency, it's gonna do this, this, and this. Well, what we didn't know is that that high efficiency unit really needed strong water pressure and we live in the country. And so we're on a well, and we can't produce the kind of water pressure it needed. So it didn't live up to my wife's expectations, all right? Now, she convinced me to buy her another set, all right? So now I got two fairly new, one brand new and one fairly new washer and dryer set. And I'm thinking, I'm not going to keep that thing around. I'm going to sell it. I'll explain to the people who are buying it the situation. So some people from Grand Rapids, they're looking on Craigslist, they see it, they give me a call, they say, we really like that, that, that looks like a great deal, and it was a great deal. Um, so they come all the way over to my house, and uh, you know, the guy comes to my door and he says, uh, we wanna buy it, we, we like it, it's in great condition, um, we can write you a check, right? Uh, No, I actually don't know you, right? And I don't want to go all the way to Grand Rapids to chase down a bad check. So cash works really well. So they went to the bank and they got cash. And I said, "I, I need you to just give me cash. Why? Because there was no confidence whatsoever that they could back up that piece of paper. I had no relationship. Paul's using that same thought right here. When he says, calculate the reality. This is factual. This is true. You know the money is in the bank. You're acting on a fact here. Let me just go a little bit deeper with you if I haven't already. Here's what Romans 6 is telling me. It's not telling me to feel like I'm dead to sin. It says you are, and therefore you've got to act on that reality. The reality of what God's word declares to be true because God's word does things. We just talked about that in prayer. God's word is alive, and it's active, and it's sharp, and it does things to you. Let me rabbit trail with you for just a minute, just to help you with this thought process. When God's Word does things, when it speaks, it can do things even to your heart. I'll give you an example. Look with me on the screen at this verse from Philippians. Philippians 4, we looked at this a couple weeks ago, verse 6, be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now look at the commitment from God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, not just some, but all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So you consider what God is saying, the commitment that he's making, and he says, I need you to take an action as a result of what I've said. Here's a a reduced version of that, a, a shortened one. It comes from 1 Peter 5. Cast all your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Remember, we're rabbit trailing here for just a minute. What do we spend the great majority of our time worrying about? What do we get most anxious about? Whether or not we are willing to admit it. We worry most about whether or not We measure up. Let's follow this thought. Are the clothes I'm wearing acceptable? Are my friends going to like me? When I show up in school, are they going to laugh at me in the hallway? Did I do a good enough job for my employer? Is he pleased enough? Am I measuring up? And Christians translate that same anxiety over into their life thinking, did I do enough? Did I measure up enough? Does God really love me enough to take me into eternity? Does does my action measure up enough that Jesus actually forgave me of my sin? That's our greatest anxiety, and with that very thought in mind, Jesus says, cast that on me. Put that on me, because I'm telling you, you are alive in me. You do measure up because of Jesus. Jesus. So end of rabbit trail, take that same thought. So when it comes to sin issue in your life, when it comes to daily patterns in which there may be failure, in which you understand sin has got a a root, Paul's saying, consider yourself dead to that and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Jesus. So, God's not commanding you to become dead to sin. He's telling us we already are, and so we have to act on that reality because thought is the father to action. And what we think carries out in our behavior. That command is psychologically sound. That explains why Paul says in verse 12 therefore, therefore, do not let sin reign because it's like a king and it wants to reign. Go with me into verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. See, there's an implication here, church. The implication is that sin can reign. You may be destined for heaven. You may be destined for eternity with God in heaven, and yet sin can still act like a king in your life. That's why Paul's saying, don't let it reign over you. Don't let it be a monarch. The first Greek word in your notes this morning, we'll move through them fairly quickly. You'll see it on the screen, and it's also, if you haven't pulled it out of your bulletin yet, in your notes. This particular word that's being used here is talking about a king something that's got to reign, he rules over something. So, this issue of sin is speaking to the fact that it's a real force. When we think of sin, we typically think of our behavior that lying, that cheating, that stealing, murdering, that's sin. That's right, that's actions of sin. But sin according to the Bible is an actual force. That's why you find it in the book of Revelation in chapter 20 being cast into the lake of fire in which God abolishes it and destroys it forever because it's like a monarch. So as a follower of Jesus, I find myself in this place where I have to do my part. I have to refuse to listen to the command of that ruler. Because Paul's saying don't obey it. That means that ruler is speaking. And obeying has its root in listening. If you're you're listening to that command of that ruler, there's a chance you might obey it and heed what it's calling you to do. So let me back up with you just a moment. I I said this is an issue of self-examination, right? Because of the truth of your relationship with God, who you are in Christ Jesus, that you committed with your heart and your mind saying, Jesus, I want you to be my Savior. I recognize you are the Son of God. I want you to take my sin away. Because of that alignment with God and now the power of the Holy Spirit in you, you are able to exercise your will against that monarch, that one that used to rule over your life, no longer rules over you. You are able to exercise your will against it. I said that sin is characterized as a force in the Bible, as a persona, It's actually given personality-type descriptions. But because of what Jesus has done, get ready with your amens, because of what Jesus has done, it has been dethroned. Amen? Okay. However, it is still a powerful force, and it still assaults us daily, and it's determined to reign in your life just like it did before salvation, assuming that you're a believer in Jesus. So Paul's got this monster admonition. Do not let sin reign. It has no right to reign over you. It has been displaced and taken off the throne of your life. It no longer has power over you unless, and this is a big unless, it no longer has power over you unless you obey its lust. You see that in the verse as you look at verse 12. Unless you obey, you choose to obey its lust. Now when we hear the word lust, especially church people, our mind immediately goes to really negative places thinking, whoa, that's that's the bad territory. Actually, the word lust is neutral. Your translation might say appetite or it might say desire. They're all, all three are the same word, lust, appetite, desire. Your desires, your appetites are neutral. It's like finding a $10 bill on the sidewalk. You're walking down maybe a neighborhood and you see $10 blowing across somebody's lawn and there it is right in front of you. You pick up that $10 bill, that $10 bill is neutral. It has no power over you. It's what you choose to do with it. Lust is exactly the same way. There's things that you lust for and lust is neutral. Is, is the lust towards things that are bad or things that are good? So ask yourself right now, what things in my life do I appetite towards, do I desire towards, and how do I use those things? God says very clearly that food is a good thing. It, it's meant to nourish our body. We have to have food. It, it's made to strengthen us. What we do with it is up to us. Food can produce anorexia or bulimia. Or or individuals can be so engorged, Scripture says they're actually guilty of gluttony. So what we do with it is up to us. The same thing is true of sexual behavior. God gave sex. He says it's a good thing, but how we pervert it and how we use it turns it into evil lust or good desire. It's a matter of how we use it. The same is true with your possessions, the things that you own. What do you do with those things? See, in this particular life, on this planet where we live, sin will always be a force to reckon with. It will be destroyed at the end, but right now it is a force and it corrupts, taking things that are neutral or even good and making them bad. But it's no longer master. Scripture says it doesn't have any power over you, therefore it can be resisted. This is consistent with what Peter wrote about in First Peter. Let me show you on the screen. 1 Peter 2.9, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly, see it's, it's not neutral anymore, from fleshly lust, which waged war against the soul. To be very clear, the moment that you're saved, the moment that you confess Jesus Christ as your Savior, eternally you belong to God's kingdom, and nothing can change that. Thereby, that means you're a stranger to the things of this world, That's what Scripture is telling you right there on the screen. Be like an alien. Be like somebody who doesn't even inhabit this planet. You're a stranger to these things. Your soul is forever saved, forever beyond the grip of Satan's power to bring death to you. However, sin still brings an attack against your mortal body. Verse 12, did you see that? It's against your physical being, against your persona, Your person who lives on this planet. One day, praise the Lord, it's forever gonna be beyond your reach. Sin will no longer be able to touch you when you're in eternity. But for right now, you deal with the reality of it because we're still mortal. Let me show you a verse that perhaps in chapter eight you haven't really attached to this discussion. Maybe you've read verses 22 and 23 before, but let me show it to you in a different light. Look with me on the screen. For we know, Romans 8.22, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers, the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, check this, having the first fruits of the Spirit, he's writing to believers, people who have the Holy Spirit of God within them, the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, why? Why? because we're waiting eagerly for our adoptions as sons the redemption of our bodies talk about the physical body here now paul's been talking about the bigger picture of the physical body now he moves from the physical body into the individual members and by that i mean your fingers your eyes your ears what you do with your tongue let's go into verse 13. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments. Stop right there. Do you see in parentheses next to instruments? I inserted the word weapons. In the Greek language, it is literally the word weapons. The the weapons of your body. How are you using the weapons of your body? Do not go on presenting the members of your body as weapons of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those alive from the dead and your members as weapons of righteousness to God. Do you notice that Paul's warning is not in any way in line with your soul? It's in line with your physical body. It's not in line with your soul because your soul's already saved. So the weapons are... Issues of your physical body, your hands, your eyes, your ears, the things that you use, specifically your individual components. Why? Because our bodies are still subject to sin. We're still incarcerated in this body of flesh. It's obvious that sin can still reign. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't have had to say, don't let that reign over you. Don't let it be a king. Don't let it be a monarch in your life. Otherwise, it would be purposeless for him to address this. But notice this also. It also is obvious that sin does not have to reign. Otherwise, the warning would be purposeless. So this particular word that's used here, hoplon, it's in your notes also, and this this Greek word that's talking about these instruments. It's actually instruments of warfare. These individuals receiving this letter understood exactly what he was talking about. Here's the deal. Before you were saved... Before you became a follower of Jesus, the battle was for your very soul. But now that you're saved, the battle is no longer for your soul. The battle is now trying to bring defeat against you by taking on your physical members and using your body for the wrong purposes. That's why you find in Romans 12:1 Paul pleading with the church. He can't get a stronger beg than this. Look at me with me on the screen at 12.1. I urge you, I beg you, please do not, brethren, by the mercies of God, do those things anymore. He says it this way. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now, a command from God, like you're looking at this morning. Command presupposes free will, right? It presupposes that you've got a choice to make. Am I going to obey or am I going to disobey? A command presupposes a will. It's the Christian's will being spoken of here. See, for sin to have any power whatsoever in your life, it's got to get past the check gate first. And the check gate in your life is the check gate of desire. What is my lust? What is my desire? It's neutral. It's neutral until I act on it. What is that check gate? Because for sin to have any power over me whatsoever, it's got to get past my will first, my desires. Paul's argument is there's been a transfer of obedience. You have transferred yourself to God, so don't go on presenting those members of your body to sin. It no longer has any place in your life. The metaphor that Paul's using here is kind of military. He's actually borrowed it from the military world, envisioning someone who's gone before a commanding officer who's of lower rank, presenting themselves before the officer and saying, I'm I'm here at your disposal, how do you want to use me? And his command to us is, don't go to that general anymore. That monarch, that one who wants to reign over you, don't listen to him. He doesn't have any authority over you. But do you notice also as you read verse 13 that refusing the sin is only half the battle? It's only really half the issue. The opposite of it is offering ourselves as instruments of righteousness. And that's an additional challenge. Some of you this morning, you have amazing personalities. You have brilliant minds. Some of you have incredible skills. Are you offering your potential, your personality, all that God has wired you to be? Are you offering that to God? Are you using it for his spiritual work within the kingdom? Because you can be an instrument of righteousness. D.L. Moody is really famous for saying, he actually quoted a pastor from England. He said, the world has yet to see the effects of someone who is totally surrendered to God. D.L. Moody himself, who was surrendered to God, said the world has yet to see somebody who's totally sold out to God. What would that do on this planet? Except for Jesus Christ, he's the only one who was totally surrendered. So as I'm reading notes this earlier this week, William Barclay's comment really jumped out at me. He said it this way. I want you to see it on the screen. We are faced with the tremendous alternative of making ourselves weapons in the hands of God or weapons in the hand of sin. It's a good one, right? It's in your notes. Keep that one. Put it in the back of your Bible. You've got a tremendous alternative here. Am I going to be a weapon for Satan's work? Am I going to be a weapon for the kingdom? Verse 14 is all the further we're going to go today, and it's going to go pretty quickly. And Paul makes a transition here. He moves from admonishing the church into exhorting. Paul, the preacher, really comes out. Look with me at verse 14. For sin... It shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Sin's not your master. You're no longer under that. You're under the command of the general, the monarch, the king. You're no longer under sin, you're under grace. Somebody say amen. That's God's promise. You're now under this. Christ follower, you are under grace. You're under the power of this living God and it's in that power that Jesus calls you to live. To end this, let me just take you back into verse 13. Just even think of it. You don't even have to look at it but just hear what he had to say. Present yourself to God as those alive from the dead. I once was dead. I'm not anymore. This word yield or present It's found five times in three very short verses, verses 13, 16, and 19. There must be a reason he's repeating that word over and over again. You understand this word present or yield, perhaps if you've really stopped to consider it before, what it means, but there's an implication going on here. There's an implication of a critical resolve. You've made a determination in your life. It's a decision of surrender. And I'm not talking about surrendering yourself to Jesus to be saved. I'm talking about surrendering yourself to Jesus in order to defeat sin in your life. I'm talking about two different issues. You're already a believer. You're already saved. What we're talking about is putting to death something that's got control over you. This particular word that's you used, your last Greek word in your notes this morning, it, you'll see it on the screen, it's in, in your notes as, as well. It talks about standing beside at the moment that you're presenting yourself. So if you've given a gift to somebody recently, maybe um, you gave a graduation gift. Somebody's graduated high school and, and you're presenting something to them. Or maybe an anniversary or a birthday. In order to do that, you, you came to that individual and you have purchased something. Or you're giving them cash... And you're yielding over something of yourself to that individual, saying, I'm presenting myself alongside, and I'm giving this to you. That's the sense in which this is being used here. So logically, we would say, this this issue of critical resolve, of yielding myself, why? If I'm already saved, why does God want my body? Why does he want my physical members? So let's just ask that question. Why does the Lord want my body presented to Him? Well, first of all, Scripture says your body is the temple of God, right? It says it in multiple places. It it, it says your body, body is the temple of the living God. You've just learned in Romans 6 that your body is also the instrument of weaponry for God. He can use you to do things in the kingdom that He specifically designed you for. He wants your members as tools for his kingdom. Think this through with me. He used Moses' mouth, did he not? He used Moses' hands. He used the wisdom of Solomon. He used the feet of Paul to carry him from city to city, and he used the mouth of Paul to speak to the city. He used John's ears, he used John's eyes, and he used John's fingers to write down everything that he saw in the book of Revelation. God uses the independent physical members of our body. Paul's argument is, how are you using those? Are you using them as instruments of righteousness to advance the kingdom? Are you using them still for the commanding general that used to be in charge of your life? That leads to the next question. Why yield if I'm already saved? Now, if you have to ask that question, you probably don't understand the issue of grace, really. You probably don't fully comprehend that. We yield... Because based on what we studied back in chapter 6, verse 1, go back to that online and and look at that if you want to. Paul asked the question, should we continue in sin that grace would abound? God forbid, right? We we continue in obedience because of grace. It's a reason to obey more. That, That takes me to the last question. How do we yield? And I saved it for the last for this reason. It's the most complicated one. It's the one we all struggle with. I don't mean complicated in understanding it. Complicated in living it out in our life. Here's what we're guilty of in church. We give churchy answers. So when somebody comes and says, how do I do that? Typically what rolls off our tongue is a churchy answer. Well, you need to pray more. And you've got the Holy Spirit in you. Just walk that way. Well, that's true, but it can become very cliche, right? Right? It can be very cliche to say, well, I'm praying about this or I've got the Holy Spirit in me. Is there no responsibility on our own? Can we only blame it and put it on the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit's in me, but he must not be doing his part because I'm still falling into this behavior. There's a third issue going on here. Yes, prayer, absolutely. Yes, the power of the Holy Spirit, absolutely. But there is an act of the will. There is an act of personal determination, an act of resolve, and it's rooted in the knowledge of what Jesus did. We are talking about an intelligent act of determination. It's not emotion-based. It's based in the reality of understanding, I am dead to sin. I am alive to God in Christ Jesus. That is no longer who I was. I am now this new creation. And sometimes we have to tell ourselves that constantly. Because that sin force comes against us constantly, pushing and pushing like a wave at the sea pushing a boat. It is a powerful entity. So we need the force of the Holy Spirit to push back against it and the determined resolve to allow the Holy Spirit to bring conviction. If I read to you in the Greek language the way this verse literally reads, and I'm going to do that in just a second, you would hear a word repeated over and over and over. Let's see if you pick up on what it is. It's very, very constant. Do not constantly allow sin to reign in your mortal body so that you are constantly obeying its lust. Neither constantly yield the members of your body as weapons of unrighteousness to sin, but once and for all yield yourself to God. You picking up on the key word there? Constantly, right? constantly stop doing that. Once and for all, put it to death. Put your stake in the ground. You're dead to sin. You're alive to God. I'm not implying in any way that there will be no future steps of surrender. There will be. As we walk with Jesus and we mature in our walk with Christ, we have to die daily, right, church? Paul said that. I die daily to this stuff. I have to surrender myself daily. Often I've thought of the thief on the cross, right? How easy he had it because (laughs) it was like the same afternoon, man. Jesus, I believe, okay, you're going to be with me in paradise. There's no real sanctification process going on there. But those of us who are living out our life, we get the privilege of representing the king on this planet. Wherever we're at, it's this constant act of surrender. And the longer you walk with Jesus, the more you have to deny that old nature. So what we're really talking about here is a steady determination of resolve. Have you resolved in yourself to walk holy because God sees you as holy? So I end with Ephesians 1.4 because I think it speaks to it best. This This is where we close. He, God, chose us in Him, meaning Jesus. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Why? that we should be holy and blameless before him. That is an awesome verse. God chose us before this planet ever existed that we would be holy and blameless. He already sees you as holy, but that you would live it out so that you would become such a fragrant aroma to the city around you that the church could rise in Jesus' name. And the city in response would sing in Jesus' name. How awesome to be part of that. That God would work in us in such a way as instruments of righteousness to advance his kingdom. Get to the end of your life and look back over it and say, yeah, I was a force for the kingdom. God worked through me. I want to pray for you that way right now. Would you allow me to do that? I just would love to pray that the reality of Ephesians 1-4 would be lived out in your walk this week. Let's pray together. God, we see the bar that you set for us in Romans 6. And we know the reality that you call us holy and we are destined for eternity. I pray for these men and these women, these students. God, pray for myself That the walk that we carry out before a watching community would be of such a fragrant aroma that would be of such holy behavior of such righteousness that people would see jesus in us to the degree that they would be attracted that the the scent that is emitted from our walk with you would be of such a degree that people would find us to be contagious God, I ask that that would be true in our walk this week, that the things that you've convicted us of in the midst of this passage, that we would not quickly let them escape, but that we would live with it this week, Surrender to you. We ask for victory, the victory that you can bring through the power of the Holy Spirit that is within us We find ourselves in a place of wanting to surrender. So God, we ask that you would do your work, do what only you can accomplish, We ask for this in the name of the one who redeemed us, the name of the matchless King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people in agreement said, Amen. Have a powerful week, New Hope.